0: I ended our last session with a quote by the Dutch politician and theologian, Abraham Kuyper. A quote where he emphasized how the sovereignty of Christ extends into every domain of human life and culture. And you know, when these early Christians in the book of Acts went around proclaiming the message that Jesus is Lord, that's what they were saying. They weren't just inviting people into some kind of private spirituality. The Christian call to repentance that we hear in coming out of the mouths of people like Peter and Paul, this Christian call to repentance and conversion is a call to recognize Christ's rule over every aspect of human existence. It was a call to a new way of life. And that call had revolutionary implications and sometimes, because of that, inspired fierce opposition. And you see examples of this opposition all throughout Acts, but perhaps the most memorable one is what happens in Acts chapter 19, when the missionary work of Paul leads to this scene, this scene of mayhem, where a riotous mob erupts in the city of Ephesus. Now, in order to understand this story, what's going on here, it's helpful to know some historical background. Ephesus was one of the most important cities in ancient Rome. It was located on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and it was a major port for shipping and transportation. And it was also widely known throughout the Roman world for some of its incredible cultural and architectural achievements, such as the Grand Theater. There was this enormous amphitheater, that could hold 25,000 people in it at one time. It was the largest theater in Asia Minor. And Ephesus was also a major center for religious activity. We know of temples and worship act going on for a whole variety of Greek gods, Demeter, Dionysius, Apollo, Athena, Zeus, several prominent Egyptian deities were being worshiped in Ephesus. But above all, the goddess whom the Ephesians honored more than any other was Artemis. And her temple, which was called the Artemisium, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this was no mere temple. The Artemisium had massive wealth from gifts of wealthy patrons. It was one of the only temples in Roman law that a patron could bequeath wealth to in their will. It had large land holdings, and it also functioned as a kind of central bank in Ephesus and the region for deposits and lending that would all take place through the temple. And it was this goddess, Artemis, and this temple, the Artemisium, that sparked a riot in Acts chapter 19. So what happened exactly? Well, Luke tells us in verse 23 that... About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Luke has a characteristic way of understating things. You may remember in chapter 15 when he described the argument over whether to circumcise Jews, this argument that threatened to split apart the Christian movement. He called it no small dissension. Now, What happens here, this is far from being a little affair. As we read on, you learn that this disturbance is caused by a certain Demetrius, this man who is a silversmith who made little silver replicas of Artemis' temple. Well, Demetrius, he gathers together a guild of sorts, his fellow silversmiths and artisans, and he tells them he's very deeply concerned about what's going on with Paul's missionary work. As he puts it, not only in Ephesus, But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And then Demetrius tells them why this is such a major concern. He gives two reasons. First, he says, this message that Paul has about the Greek gods not being gods at all, this is going to discredit the work that we do as those who craft religious images. And second, he says, Paul is actually encouraging people to dishonor Artemis and no longer worship her. If Paul is allowed to continue, Demetrius says, Artemis may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, Demetrius' words here, they, they seem to unleash a kind of spontaneous protest. This guild quickly turns into a mob, they grab two of Paul's companions, Agaius and Aristarchus, and they drag them with them to the amphitheater. And the only reason Paul isn't caught up by the mob is that some of his friends and some of the civic leaders of Ephesus restrain him from going down there himself. And then once the mob gets to the theater, Luke describes the scene as one of just kind of mass chaos. People are all shouting at one time. Some people don't even know why they're there. And then they grab this Jew named Alexander and put him up in front to speak. we don't really know who this is. Is this Alexander? Is he a representative of Jews who are against Paul? Is Alexander a Jewish Christian perhaps? We don't know. And it's not really clear that the crowd would understand the difference anyway. Because when they recognize that Alexander is a Jew and therefore, in their minds, not a worshiper of Artemis, they immediately erupt into shouting and chanting. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they say. And Luke says this chanting goes on for two hours until an official, he calls him the town clerk, although this term is a little misleading because it sounds like he's a lowly administrator. Actually, this official is the the Roman representative within Ephesus. He has a very important civic role. Well, this clerk finally manages to quiet them down by responding to Demetrius's complaints. And the clerk says three things. First, he says, Artemis is in no danger. She is worshipped all over the world, and the whole Roman world knows that her great temple is in Ephesus, that she is not going to be dishonored by this Paul. Second, he says, Demetrius can take it to the courts if he wants to level a complaint against Paul. And finally, he says to the crowd, you are causing a riot. And this last one is pretty important. And we know from other historical examples that Romans dealt swiftly and harshly when riots broke out in cities. So with all that, this official is able to persuade the mob to calm down and he sends them home. So that's what happens, this scene of mass chaos and rioting. Now, as I said, this is no small disturbance. It's the largest and the most vivid example yet we have of pagan rejection and hostility toward the Christian message. But why? Why this big outrage? I think that the Kenyan scholar, Mumo Kisau, I think, he identifies the heart of the matter pretty clearly and succinctly in his brief summary comment on this passage. A missionary work, he says, missionary work may result in persecution when it affects the local economy. Now, that's the issue here in Ephesus. That's what caused this riot. It was one thing for Paul to preach about a different God, and that was tolerated. It wasn't even that controversial when Paul criticized Greek religion like he did in Athens and denied the Greek gods. But when the message of Jesus as Lord began to challenge the local economy, when it began to threaten and affect people's money, that was when it went too far. And you know, this probably shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself often spoke of how money could be a barrier to discipleship. And he even described money as a kind of rival God and rival master, the God Mammon. And we've already seen in Acts how people's loyalty to their money put them into conflict with the mission of the church. Just think about the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 8. Or what happens when Paul and Silas heal a possessed girl in Acts chapter 16 and in so doing threaten the livelihood and profit of her slave masters. The town clerk in Ephesus was ultimately able to dissuade the crowd from rioting, but Demetrius, Demetrius the silversmith, he he was more accurate in his comments. The threat posed by Paul wasn't just religious. Paul's claim that Jesus is Lord, or in the words of Abraham Kuyper, that Christ claims dominion over every sphere of human existence. That was a claim that imperiled the entire economic system upon which Ephesus was built. And in fact, it seems that this is exactly what happened later on. Demetrius was kind of prophetic. Because in the early years of the second century, there's a Roman governor in Asia Minor by the name of Pliny. And Pliny writes a letter to the emperor Trajan seeking advice about what to do with these Christians. And Pliny's concern is about the disloyalty that these Christians are showing, their disloyalty to civic authority, their disobedience. But Pliny was especially concerned about the effect that they were having on the Roman economy because, as he told Trajan in his letter, the more Christians there are, the less people there are to sacrifice to the gods and to spend money on sacrifices and support the temple economy. So you see, what happened in Ephesus, this wasn't just a battle between Christ and Artemis. It was a battle between Christ and Mammon. The Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he translates this clash in Acts chapter 19, translates it into terms that we can understand. What would it be like today? Here's how Wright puts it. Imagine someone setting up shop in the heart of the financial district of one of our great cities, London, Frankfurt, New York, Tokyo, and using the basis of a powerful ministry of healing to declare over and over again that the money markets and the stock markets were simply a way of worshiping the god Mammon, that this was destroying the lives and the livelihoods of millions in other parts of the world, that the whole system was rotten and anyone who saw the light ought to reject it outright. You might get more than just a sharp word now and then, especially if the idea seemed to be catching on. Of course, this wasn't the first time when the gospel of Jesus clashed with economic interests, and it wouldn't be the last. Sadly, sometimes it has been Christians who have been guilty of choosing mammon over God. Prior to the Civil War, many southern slave owners, often professing Christians themselves, tried to actively prevent slaves from hearing the gospel out of fear that they might want freedom. And some of them went so far as to create a heavily edited Bible just for slaves to read. A Bible which included stories like the story of Joseph as a slave, but which actually kept out the story of Moses and the Exodus. A Bible which included verses about obedience to masters, but which left out verses like Galatians 3.28 about how there is no slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. In fact, you can still see a copy of this Bible today on display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Another sad example of this comes from the 16th century. When the Spanish came to the New World, they killed and enslaved thousands. And their interest, of course, was wealth. But the banner that they hid behind was often that of Christian mission. And it was up to a Dominican priest by the name of Bartolome de las Casas to point out to them that in serving mammon in the way they were, they had brought dishonor to the name of Christ. De las Casas told the story of an Indian prince, an indigenous prince who, as he was being tied to a stake to be burned alive by the Spanish, he was asked by a priest whether he would like to go to heaven when he died. He asked if there would be Spaniards there in heaven. And when the priest told him, yes, there would be, the prince said he would rather go to hell than to be with Spaniards and to this story de las Casas said this is the renown and honor that God and our faith have acquired by means of the Christians who have gone to the Indies. To these stories of course we could add many more. The fact is whenever the gospel is preached, whenever Jesus is declared Lord, this message will be met with resistance by those who serve other gods especially the God of Mammon. And whenever Mammon is chosen over Christ, the result will be violence and idolatry. This conflict will never go away as long as the church is on mission. But the crowds rioting in Ephesus, that didn't stop Paul or Barnabas or Bartolome de las Casas from preaching because the message that Paul brought to Ephesus is true. Jesus is Lord, or as Kuyper put it, there is not one square inch over the whole domain of human existence over which Christ the Lord does not say, mine.